Are you searching for a meaningful way to further your career in international development? As you set new goals for 2021 and beyond, consider Seton Hall University's Executive Graduate Program in International Affairs. Attending a webinar is the perfect way to learn how you can customize your studies by specializing your research in areas such as global health security, conflict management, and more. As a graduate candidate, you would receive access to one-on-one faculty mentorship, career workshops, international seminars, and discussions with global leaders on campus, at the UN headquarters in New York, and in Washington, D.C. And the program is flexible. You can study full-time or part-time and online or on campus in New Jersey, just 14 miles from New York City. To learn more or sign up for a webinar, click the link in our episode description. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion, and welcome to Unscripted. Today, China takes the presidency of the Security Council for the month of May, hoping to control the narrative around the COVID-19 pandemic, Myanmar, and human rights. In this episode, you'll hear from Rosemary Foote, an Oxford professor who has just recently published a book titled China, the UN, and Human Protection. We also have on Peter Irwin, a program officer at the Uyghurs Human Rights Project, a nonprofit defending the rights of the persecuted Muslim minority Uyghurs in the province of Xinjiang, China. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. We haven't met with each other in person really for, for long. And I should say, I do miss you so much. China held a briefing with reporters in person on May 3rd at the UN on International Press Freedom Day. Even though Ambassador Zhang Jin says he's missed reporters, the Chinese mission has not responded to our requests for an interview and also declined our invitation in March 2020 during its last presidency. So the information in this episode is based on what Ambassador Zhang told reporters in his public UN briefing. It's China's second presidency during the pandemic. It was holding the reins of the council in March last year, just when the coronavirus was spreading in New York City and elsewhere, and when the Security Council under China virtually shut down for two weeks. The consul eventually transferred the bulk of its meetings online by April. Now, China appears to have controlled the pandemic at home and, to some extent, the narrative abroad. In May, China has organized meetings on issues that are some of its usual international priorities, while tiptoeing around human rights. Here's Oxford University professor Rosemary Foote on this. In many ways, I think it was very disappointing um, uh, in, in that previous period when its presidency you know, occurred at the same time as the opening of the pandemic, that it didn't feel able to actively put that issue onto the agenda, you know, to generalize about health pandemics. And it's almost as though it's, it's not very fleet of foot, you know, it's not, it, it deliberates for a long time. It's, there's still this, 
despite the ambition of Xi Jinping about obviously what we talk about in terms of Chinese diplomacy being much more assertive than it used to be in the past, but it's not a system that's able to move in a very agile way. And it made, as I understand it, without having followed it you know, absolutely as closely as, as some others have, it just didn't want to put it out there, essentially. It didn't want to draw attention to it, in part because obviously it had, you know, been so crucial in that early development of, of the pandemic and it was still obviously debated internally inside China about origins and about freedom of information and all those sorts of issues were being debated to some degree internally online. So it sort of avoided something that was controversial. This time around, China will mention the pandemic, but will do so by focusing on Africa, one of China's key areas of influence internationally. On May 19, China is organizing an open debate on the continent's recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. China will also focus on peacekeeping and multilateralism. Before China's press briefing, Rosemary Foote talked to us about what she expected for the month. It's very concerned about the expansion of the Security Council agenda and would like to narrow it. So maybe it won't talk about the big issue that we should be talking about, which is, yes, again, how to prevent future health pandemics globally um, and also how to deal with climate change. Um, it may not, you know, it may avoid those, the two big issues that we really, we need to be thinking about and advancing our thought processes on. And it may actually revert to something rather narrow that is also of great concern to it, which is about the safety and security of peacekeeping troops. That's one of its big issues. And it may be that they will actually formulate a debate around that particular question, something like that. And not, you know, not these kind of the big challenges that the United Nations faces. I mean, maybe it will do something on the development angle. I mean, obviously things like sustainable development goals, the, you know, supposed to be completed by 2030 and so on. It's, you know, we're moving along that way. The COVID-19 has had a major impact on SDG agenda and so on. So Rosemary Foote had it almost all right. But there is one meeting on the schedule that few could have predicted. China is also organizing an ARIA formula meeting on the impact of emerging technologies on international peace and security. An ARIA formula meeting is an informal council gathering that allows more countries to attend and speak. The topic is surprising because China tends to be a bit traditional when it comes to what topics are appropriate for the Security Council. Here's Ambassador Zhang on how China is approaching the issue. In the coming days, we can get the United Nations better equipped with new technologies. How we can facilitate the cooperation between and among member states with uh, new technologies and how and uh, how to prevent the misuse and abuse of new technologies by those groups by terrorists for ulterior purposes so that's uh, really uh, the uh, the the idea we have in mind in designing uh, this area formula meeting 
Many Security Council diplomats told us the meeting was a surprise for them too. China is allegedly still looking for another country to co-sponsor the meeting. In a copy of a draft concept note for the meeting that Pazblu has seen exclusively, China wrote, quote-unquote, while acknowledging the positive effects of emerging technologies, we should not neglect their adverse impacts. The competition among countries in those emerging areas will reshape the global security order and security governance. The militarization of emerging technologies could lower the threshold of warfare, trigger arms race, and exacerbate regional tensions. So that's going to be one meeting to watch. And it could be indicative of China's increasingly prominent role as a permanent five member and how its approach to the UN is changing. This has intensified China's rivalry with the other permanent members, the US, Russia, France, and Britain. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a talk show featuring leading global voices? Do you want to learn more about how international issues directly affect people locally? Global Connections Television presents the insights of global influencers at no cost to viewers and programmers. GCTV is independently produced and reaches more than 70 million potential viewers worldwide each week. The show covers everything from human rights to climate change, from peace and security to empowering women and girls. It features guests such as Dr. Jane Goodall, former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights Mary Robinson, and Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. The show also hosts expert voices from the private sector, academia, and labor and environmental movements. GCTV is available to public television media outlets, universities, and service clubs for distribution. To watch the show or find out more, click the link in our episode description. Now, back to the show. For Rosemary Foote, China's rise at the UN correlates with Xi Jinping's presidency. I think the next major turning point, really, is with the ad- of the Xi Jinping presidency, because a number of issues that had been talked about but hadn't really materialised into a a new direction, they they come to the fore. So, for example, the decision to add combat troops to China's UN peacekeeping forces, that is finally decided and announced, um, and it had been something that had been discussed for, for many years. And then again, under Xi, you got to get this very important statement in 2015, September 2015, where he commits China to offering the United Nations uh, new resources and 8,000 troops standby force, setting up of a China-UN peace and development fund, extra money to African peacekeeping organizations and units and so on. So, So a variety of things happen over the course of the Xi Jinping presidency, which indicates uh, two things, I think. One, that they are going to have, in terms of multilateral diplomacy, they're going to try to make it UN-centric as much as possible. And then the, the second thing is that he is a much more decisive leader than previous previous leaders. So he's more ambitious. He's talked about China playing a leading role in global governance reform. So, you know, he's he's tried to, in a sense, put resources behind that. And as China's economy 
has grown anyway. It therefore its assessed contributions to the United Nations have stepped up quite substantially. So it's now second largest contributor to the peacekeeping budget and to the overall UN budget. China is also the world's second largest economy. But in his briefing to the press, Ambassador Zhang emphasized that China is a developing country. There's no universal definition of a developing country, but some argue that China is not one because of the size of its economy. Ambassador Zhang also talked about China's human rights record, answering a question asked by Chinese state media without directly mentioning the elephant in the room, the Uyghurs. We know that uh, some some friends have different views, but as a Chinese, I have I witnessed the remarkable uh, uh, progress uh, we have made in protecting and the promotion of human rights, especially uh, uh, the promotion and the protection of human rights of vulnerable groups, uh, women. We say that uh, women in China hold half of the sky, but actually they are holding more than half of the sky and the protection of the rights of children, of ethnic minorities, of people with disabilities. We are really, uh, by these efforts, we are not only promoting the human rights uh, enjoyment of our people, we are also making huge contribution to the global effort in this regard. One issue that was not mentioned in Ambassador Zhang's 90-minute press briefing was the situation in Xinjiang, a northwest province of China. Many international organizations accuse China of persecuting the Muslim minority who lives there, the Uyghurs. Here's Peter Irwin of the Uyghurs Human Rights Project on this. I started working at the World Uyghur Congress, I mean, the Uyghur Human Rights Project in D.C. now, but in 2014. The situation was pretty bad then, and it had been bad for at least a decade before that in terms of religious repression, language rights, freedom of movement, disproportionate sentencing of activists, journalists, other people shutting down the internet, not allowing leaders to essentially do anything that would resemble the free practice of their culture. It got worse by 2016, 2017. We had the mass detention of Uyghurs and other Turkic Muslims too. It's not just Uyghurs, but Kazakhs, Kyrgyz, other peoples. The mass detention is, estimates put that number at about 1.8 million, up to two or three million, even some higher level estimates. That's at least 10 or 15% of the entire Uyghur population in the region. It's a huge number. And then what sort of accompanied these mass detentions was this pervasive surveillance state that now exists in the region, supported in large part by Chinese technology companies, surveillance cameras with facial recognition software. According to Peter Irwin, the situation is getting worse in Xinjiang. Many countries, mostly Western ones, have publicly denounced the situation at the UN in New York and in Geneva. China, on its side, lobbies its allies to praise its human rights record, But the number of countries publicly criticizing China has risen since last summer. These economic levers are very important for China, not just the UN, but but elsewhere, kind of everywhere in terms of what they're doing. They have been a bully for a long time, and they do do this often in terms of, you know, states' position on, for example, the recognition of Taiwan, things like this. They, They use their bilateral relationships and these asymmetrical bilateral relationships to push states to do what they want. With regards to China at the UN, though, I think 
the reason that some of these allied governments are supporting China is because sometimes they need support themselves. So look at Venezuela, for example, when there was calls for investigations of Venezuela or calls for investigations of other countries, they want to have China support down the road when things come up in which they need that kind of support from the council or within the UN more broadly. One other small example too is that in Sri Lanka, for example, that there have been calls for uh, an investigation by UN officials into, into war crimes, essentially what's actually happening in the country. China pushed hard against this, of course, not because they care much about what's happening in Sri Lanka, but they care a lot about sort of this potentially setting a precedent for investigative powers from UN officials, for example. So you see this sort of playing out on a number of levels. Speaking of investigations, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, has yet to do her own probe in the region. The UN office is still waiting for unconditional access to Xinjiang. Peter Irwin says an investigation on the ground could enable the UN Human Rights Offices to speak more clearly about what is going on there. It's also important to recognize that there have been calls and demands for access I sort of use air quotes for access for quite a long time, for the last couple of years. It's critical that independent UN investigators are able to go to the region and actually see what's happening. But this is a very sensitive subject, of course, for China, but also for the UN in terms of what kind of signal this would send if they go to the region and are not provided adequate access to understand what's happening. China has been negotiating, and again, I use sort of air quotes with negotiating with the UN's office, as far as we know, for at least a couple of years, they said, yes, we'll, we'll accept access. And they made this clear in the press and elsewhere. The problem is that access is never actually granted. They say, yes, seeing is believing is a phrase that they use quite often within the Human Rights Council. Just come to Xinjiang, come to East Turkestan, see what's happening for your, with your own eyes. The issue is that they don't actually in practice accept the UN uh, monitoring team to go in because they say, look, we accept access, but only a certain kind of access. And this is what the tricky point is for the UN High Commissioner at the moment is that I think they would like to have access to the region. They haven't been pushing perhaps as hard as enough. Uh, They would like access to the region, but the problem is that if they do have access, what kind of signals does this send, as I mentioned? If they're only able to access certain regions, certain people, if they can't get guarantees that the people that they speak to, for example, are not going to face retaliation after speaking with uh, UN officials, that's really something that we're not sure can even be guaranteed. So another option for the UN and what they've done before at the UN Human Rights Office is to set up what they call remote monitoring, remote monitoring mechanisms, basically to in situations where they're not granted effective access they say look okay we don't get access to the country we're going to do this monitoring remotely and and work with perhaps researchers or journalists other people or at least use that kind of information as a starting point for their own research by their teams peter Irwin thinks that the situation in Xinjiang is informing china's approach to the crisis in myanmar china is letting asean the association of southeast asian nations take the lead in trying to resolve the crisis in Myanmar. China opposes UN sanctions and prioritizes sovereignty over human rights. Beijing has not yet organized a council meeting on Myanmar in May. Ambassador Zhang says that China feels like the body has done what it can on the Myanmar coup and related violence, and that ASEAN is now in charge. The way in which China's approached the situation in Myanmar is very much indicative of what they want to happen with regards to their country. They're not 
thinking about the situation in Myanmar and making statements about state sovereignty without thinking about what they're doing in the Uyghur region. They understand very well that if, again, within the UN system, there's been monitoring missions on Myanmar and they've said that there have been atrocities taking place. China is very much sensitive as to the potential for the UN to be turned on them if they're not careful. They don't want to set a precedent there. We're essentially expecting them to do everything that they can to block any kind of UN investigation because everything they do with regards to Myanmar comes back to what they want to see happen or not happen uh, with regards to the UN's approach to the Uyghur region. That's it for our show. This episode was co-produced by me, Casey Candela, and Stephanie Filion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor. Ivana Ramirez is our intern. AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And PassBlue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to Washington's new approach to the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to PassBlue.com. PassBlue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit PassBlue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.